We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Daniel. We are going to be looking at chapter 2. It's a longer chapter, and so though we won't be reading every verse, we are going to be looking at major sections, and so you will very much be helped if you have a Bible open. In, uh, I think it was 2019, the President of the United States, he started what was called the White House's Faith and Opportunity Initiative. And I have no idea what they did. I have no idea the objective of what this whole idea was. But what I do know is that because of this initiative, about 2,000 religious leaders in America got to sit down with the president. Many of them were pastors. Many of them were evangelical pastors. Now, I love a good thought experiment. And so when I heard about this, I started thinking, if I had an opportunity to go to the Oval Office and to sit with the president for an hour, or maybe if I just had a minute, what would I say? What would my message be? Last week, I read that the queen, she, when Billy Graham was in town in her lifetime, she would often ask if Billy could come and they would have this private conversation. It also got me thinking, what did he say to her? What was his message to the queen? And so this is just not my thought experiment. It's all of our thought experiments. If you had an opportunity to sit with a president, a king, a queen, a sovereign, what would your message be? What would your sort of elevator pitch be to someone in that sort of position of power? Or let me sort of broaden it, as it relates to the church. Do we have a message for the kings and kingdoms of this world? Do we as a a church have a message for the world? And if so, if we do have a message for the world, what would it be? Well, that's what Daniel 2 is all about. Daniel 2 is all about God's people having a message, a word for the king, a word for the kingdom, in many sense, a word for the world. And we're going to, this morning, discover what that word is. Now, every week I try to give you sort of the big idea, summarize the big idea of uh, the kind of portion of scripture that we're looking at. And so the big idea is simply this. And I'm sort of giving you, I'm putting all my cards on the table up front, but I'm going to kind of walk us through how I got to this big idea, which is this, that the sovereign God has a message to the world, and it's this. All earthly kingdoms are being replaced by his eternal kingdom. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, my guess is you might know the story of Daniel 2. You might know parts of the story of Daniel 2, Daniel in the lion's den, the fiery furnace, all those sorts of things. And Daniel 2 has a crazy vision. But I think what's going to be best for us is Daniel 2 is this great story. And I think, like sermonically, I think we just need to kind of roll out the sermon like the story is rolled out. And so that's what we're going to do. But I'm going to do it alliteratively because I love me a good alliteration, okay? And so this story has sort of four movements to it. First, we have a problem. 
Then we have, and this is a double alliteration, then we have a, a prayerful praise, then we have a prophecy, and then fourth, a promotion. That's good, huh? Took me all day Thursday to get that one. I'm joking. So we're going to kind of work our way through these four movements. So first, the problem. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled, and I know the, and I know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, this is where Aramaic enters into this section of scripture, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you, do not, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruin. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Well, Stop there for a moment. So, last week we met Nebuchadnezzar. He is the king, the sovereign of Babylon. And he is the king over the kingdom that sacked Israel and brought many men, women, and children into captivity. He's a powerful man. He is the most powerful, maybe, man in the world at this moment. And yet, he can't escape his dreams. He can't sleep through the night. He keeps having this reoccurring dream over and over again on loop. And it's terrifying. I'm I'm assuming we all have those reoccurring dreams. Mine is that I walk up to the pulpit and I forget that I'm supposed to preach and I've got nothing to say. I just stare out at you. Well, he has this reoccurring dream and it is frightening. Now, we, we all believe, I think every culture believes that dreams are important. And we think that dreams are, are, are like talking to us in some particular ways. So my, my guess is you might think that your dreams are, are like the, the, those unworked out things in your souls or, or maybe trauma from the past or maybe it's your subconscious trying to, trying to work out a problem while you're sleeping. It's like your soul speaking to you. Well, that's how we might think about dreams, but in the ancient Near East... They believed that dreams were not like us speaking to ourselves. Dreams were the gods speaking to us. And so, Daniel, in Daniel's day, the king has this recurring dream and he just assumes, well, the gods are trying to tell me something. They're trying to speak some truth to me. And so he gathers up all the wise men, magicians, sorcerers, mediums, professors, and he Anyone who could possibly help him interpret his visions, and he gathers them together. And he says, I need you to help me understand this dream that the gods are trying to tell me. But there's a catch, isn't there? I don't don't know if you notice it in verses 5 and 6, there's a catch. Because he says, I need you to tell me what I'm dreaming and then interpret the dream. This is sort of reminiscent of an earlier story. 
in the book of Genesis. Remember Joseph and the king of Egypt? The king also has a dream, a scary dream, a terrifying dream, a sort of reoccurring dream. And then he gathers people together. But the king of Egypt tells them the dream. And then ultimately, no one can interpret it except for Joseph. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he's paranoid. So not only will he not, not only is he making people interpret his dream, he says, I need you to tell me what I'm dreaming and then tell me what my dream means. Now, my guess is the sort of palm readers of their day, they had a lot of power. They had like books that, that were about dreams and you're like, this means this and that means that. And yet the idea of saying, oh, tell me what I dreamed last night and what it means. I mean, that's like one in a multiple trillion. I mean, the likelihood of being able to do that is impossible. And that's the point. No one can interpret this dream, let alone no one can tell the king what he was dreaming. So there's also a problem. It's not just that the king is dreaming, and that's a problem. He, he can't understand it. That's problem one. But the problem two is no one in the kingdom of Babylon can know the dream and interpret the dream. And so twice Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I need you to do this. And then three times all the wise men in Babylon say, um, can you just be merciful to us? Can you just tell us the dream and we're pretty sure that we could interpret it? They say over and over again that the king is asking for way too much. Well, like many kings, the king does not like to be told no, does he? Look down at verse 12. The king flew into a violent rage, commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And then he, he sort of issues the decree in verse 13 that all the wise men are about to be executed. And that's when Daniel and his friend enter the story. And they enter the story because, and we saw this in chapter 1, they have just graduated from Babylon University, and they are counted among the wise men in Babylon, which is a great honor. It's a great privilege, but not anymore, is it? Because now they've got a bullseye on them. Now they are part and parcel of who the king is about to execute. And then in verse 14, we have this guy, Ariok, who's sort of the, the chief executioner, and he tells Daniel their fate. That's sort of the first movement. And the first movement's bleak, isn't it? Bleak's sort of an understatement. Daniel and his friends, representative of God's people living in Babylon, they're going to be killed. They're going to be executed. All because the king is throwing a temper tantrum because he can't get a good night's sleep because of a vision. I wonder, have you ever had those weeks? Have you ever had those seasons of discouragement? Those seasons in which you, you, you've tried to map out how you're going to get out of the, this financial strait, how you're just going to get out of this situation, and yet everywhere you turn, it's just like you're getting more and more boxed in. There's no right way to get out. It just seems like the world is bleak, the world is against you, and there's no way out. Someone once said that adversity, adversity introduces a man to himself. Well, look at 
what this adversity, look at this sort of character. Look, look at the, the next movement. Look at what it pulls out of Daniel. Second movement. Go to verse 14. Then Daniel replied, and he's speaking again uh, to this kind of chief guard. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So what does Daniel do? He panics. No, he doesn't panic, does he? He, he, he tries to figure out how he could be a man on the run, right? A fugitive on the run. No, he doesn't do that. He, he gets really angry. I mean, just think of the injustice. This isn't his fault. I mean, the king is asking a lot. No, he doesn't even get angry. Actually, the, the text is pretty clear. Daniel, in all of this, is really cool and collected. He, he's tactful. There is no panic seen in Daniel in the midst of all of this. Daniel knows that he, by his own sort of wits, can't understand and interpret the, king, he, uh, the king's dream. He, he, he knows that, and yet he's calm. He's calm, and he's collected, and look what he does, right? He takes his, maybe, whatever emotional panic that he's experiencing that we can't see, he takes that panic, and what does he do? He goes, and he calls the people of God together. He calls his friends together, and he has a prayer service. Did you see that? He says, come on, let's, let's go. He goes to his house finds his friends and says, we need to go to God and call out to God that he might be merciful to us. That's how Daniel responds to this adversity. He prays. You see, prayer is the humble estimation of our human weakness and simultaneously that God is really big and really powerful. That's what these men do. They They get on their knees and they pray all throughout the night. And they pray to the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who knows everything, even the deep things. They keep praying and praying because there's there's sort of uh, an irony in here, which is that those magicians, they say only the gods would know this. And they're sort of half right. It's not the gods who know this, but there is a God who does. And Daniel and his friend know who he is. And so they prayed to him. They prayed to the the maker of all things, the seer of all things, and they asked God to be merciful to them. As God has been merciful to Joseph and Gideon when he interpreted those dreams to them. Now, I I think in many ways, Daniel had many reasons not to pray. Right? Just he was he was on a time crunch. And so think of all the things that he had to do. He had to get his affairs in order, right? Make, make those phone calls to fan, friends and family. He, he had to come up with a, a strategy, a plan. He had a lot of reasons that maybe the world would say, that's not very wise. That's not a good use of your time to get on your knees and pray. 
Yep, that's what they do. Daniel, wiser than us, who has precious little time, he prays. You might remember Winston Churchill. He once said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Daniel doesn't let this crisis go to waste. He takes this crisis, this adversity, and he turns it into prayer. He turns it into a means of deepening his trust in God. And then he turns that prayer time into praise. Look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding, who reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you, and you made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Ariach, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king that I may show the king the interpretation. Isn't this amazing? He, he, he prays, they come together, and then he begins to praise God. They had this all-night prayer time. And it's sort of ironic, right? Because the king can't sleep, but Daniel, who's about to die, can sleep. Now, why can Daniel rest? Well, for, for, for many reasons. One, because God revealed the dream and its interpretation to him. But I think we see the reason why really in this praise in verses 20 and 23. Um, this is just a, not a random, but an important kind of hermeneutical or, or interpretive uh, little tool to put in your tool belt, which is if you're reading narrative, uh, a narrative section of scripture, and all of a sudden you see poetry, you see like the author of English, the, uh, the English translation putting it in poetry, um, like slow down. It's like speed bumps. There's like important theological truths in that section. And that's what we have here, right? Right? We have this praise. In the, in the middle of this section, we have Daniel praising God. And there's sort of three theological movements to his prayer of praise. Verse 21, he praises God's power. Particularly in relationship to right, history and kings and kingdoms, that, that God raises up kings and kingdoms. And at a snap, at his will, they can come all down like Humpty Dumpty, right? On the second sort of theological movement, verse 22, Daniel praises God's wisdom. that He knows all things. Those things that you've thought that you would never want anyone else to know, he knows it all. His wisdom knows no bounds. And then verse 23, Daniel praises God because God is the sort of God who is so merciful, so wise, so powerful, and yet doesn't just keep it to himself. But he reveals truth to people, his people. 
So really, the, the, the sort of center of this story is the truth that we see in this prayer of praise. And it really is the theological truth that can make Daniel and his friends calm in the midst of this this stormy trial that they're going through. And it's this, that God is in control. That God has the power to give them the interpretation. God has the power to sustain them, protect them. And we're going to see this theme come up over and over again in Daniel, which is this deep abiding trust that God is for his people and that God can provide for his people and God can heal his people because God is that sort of powerful God. He is the sovereign Lord. He's the sovereign Lord over kings and kingdoms, presidents and republics. Now, all of us, whether you were born 2,000 years ago or today, every season in life, is a bumpy road. Every pilgrim has bumps in the road. We live in a broken world. And yet this truth that is communicated in these verses, in the midst of a bumpy road that makes us sick, this is like theological dramamine. If we really understand what Daniel is praising God about, it really can help us in the midst of living in this broken world. Well, that's the second movement. This wonderful prayer of trust in God's sovereign care, his power, his might. And then there's the third movement, which is the prophecy. We're just going to skip that because, just joking. Who wants to get into that? Third movement is this prophecy. And it's this dream. You know, Daniel goes in. He goes into the Oval Office of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he sits down. And finally, after sort of buttering up the king, he says, okay, I've got the dream and the interpretation. So, movement three, go to verse 31. So now, this is Daniel saying what the dream is. Verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceedingly bright, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king. Now we would tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom, a bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom. Strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. 
And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so with mix, uh, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom that shall be never destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be of all of this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Let's pray. It's clear, right? Amen. All right, so Daniel goes into the Oval Office. He tells the dream, and the dream is simply this, that there is this huge statue It's described as frightening, terrifyingly big. And its appearance, though it made it frightful, it has a head of gold. It has a uh, chest and arms of silver. And then uh, its middle and thighs were bronze. And its legs were of iron. And its feet of iron and clay. Now, notice that this, this statue, it's human in it's, it's, it's human in design. And there's going to be a contrast in a minute with this stone, which is not human in design. And in many ways, the statue is reminiscent of the Tower of Babel, isn't it? Only this statue, it's made of precious metals. But just then, as this tower and its hubris is just towering over everything, there's this small, insignificant Stone. Cut from what? We don't know. But what we do know, it was not made by human hands. And this small, insignificant stone crashes into the feet of the statue, and just like Humpty Dumpty, it all came crumbling down, right? That's that's the dream. And then all all the pieces of the statue are, are scattered in pieces, and the wind blows, and they just get scattered, and you... To, to, you know, to the four corners of the world, and you see them not. And then this stone, it remains, right? And it becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. That's, that's the dream. So, Daniel passed the first test, right? He, he knows the dream. What does it mean? What does this, what does this dream mean? Now, now, visions like this, and we see, we're going to see more of them in Daniel, we see other of them in Revelation, Ezekiel. There's many of them. And in some ways, we got, it's really important, theologically speaking, to look at the details. Because there's symbolism in these sorts of dreams. So, so for instance, the statue. Well, statues were common. They're common to represent kings and kingdoms. I mean, you just flip over to chapter 3, and we're going to see another statue that represents the king of Babylon. And all of Babylon. And so this statue, and we're going to read, this statue represents kings and kingdoms. And we're going to see that they represent lots of kings and kingdoms. Subsequent kingdoms that are going to rise and fall. And we also see that the head of that statue is 
none other than Nebuchadnezzar. He is the, he is the, um, the head of gold. And then coming after him is kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. Now, although these kingdoms are distinct, right? There's different like sections in this statue, right? That all of these kingdoms, there's a, a unifying principle to these kingdoms, right? That there's a commonality in all of them. And that is that all of them are in conflict with the stone. Do you see that? Though there's a distinction, and it's clear that all these kingdoms are different. They're all connected because they all have a common enemy. They all have a common conflict, and that is they're all living in conflict with this stone. We also see that, just think about the, how, how this statue is described. It starts with gold and gets all the way to iron and clay. And so what this is saying is like gold is the most precious metal and then it works itself to silver, to bronze, and then to iron, right? It's working down and each kingdom is going to be inferior to the one before it. But then sort of paradoxically, if you know anything about gold and iron, iron is stronger than gold. And so not only will each kingdom become inferior there's a sense in which each kingdom that come is going to be stronger in its opposition to the stone. Both truths set side by side. Now, we, we sit on this side of history, and, and in one sense, I'm just quite happy to interpret this as actually the church has for the last 2,000 years just generally interpreted this text, which is, there is debate on this, but it's simply this, and, and you really know and can interpret it, which is why kind of historically we've interpreted it this way. When, we, when I tell you what the stone is, it becomes clear. But, but really what these kingdoms are, we, we know specifically that the head of gold is Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. And then going down, it's the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece, and then the fourth being Rome. I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy to interpret it that way. But, but though we have fun with this and we really want to know what these kingdoms are, just think of the vision. The, the more important than kind of figuring out who these kingdoms are, the kind of culmination of this vision, it's the stone, isn't it? That's the most important aspect of this vision. It's who or what is the stone? So what is this? Well, we know that this stone is connected to a kingdom. We see that in verse 44 and verse 45. That this stone is going to crush kingdoms, and yet it is itself, in one sense, connected to a kingdom. We know that, that kingdoms are going to rise and fall, they're going to get more hostile to this stone, and yet they're going to also that they're going to be less able to withstand this stone. That's the sort of symbolic nature of this vision. And so more important than identifying these kingdoms really is the apex of this dream is identifying what is going to crush all these kingdoms. So who are they? Or what is this stone? Well, Daniel's actually not the only one in the Old Testament that talks about this whole idea of stone images. This imagery of the stone comes up in many, many places in the Old Testament. I'll just give you a couple. Isaiah 8. And Psalm 118. And in each of those, it talks about this coming king who would come and usher in his coming kingdom. Interesting, huh? 
And then if you flip over to the New Testament, you're like, okay, so what is this stone? Well, I think a helpful kind of interpretive thing is to say, well, how does the New Testament interpret the Old Testament? Like, what is particularly, how does Jesus interpret Daniel 2? Well, we see actually the New Testament interpreting Daniel 2 in lots of places. I'm just going to point out one of them, which is Luke 20. In Luke 20, Jesus tells a parable. And in Luke 20, he quotes Psalm 18, Psalm 118, Isaiah 8, and he alludes to Daniel 2. And in all of those things, Jesus himself says, I am the stone. So what is this parable? Well, well, the parable is against these religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus as the king, as the Messiah. And so he likens their rejection to people who are killing the rightful heir to a vineyard. And then after he tells this parable, he quotes Psalm 118, and then he alludes to Isaiah 8 and Daniel 2. This is the end of this parable. See if this echoes our text in Daniel 2. This is what Jesus says at the very end of this parable in Luke 20. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. See what Jesus is saying? Jesus is basically saying that he is the stone. That either you fall on that stone in belief and are saved, or if you reject that stone, you will be crushed and judged by that stone. You see, Jesus is the stone not cut by human hands. And Jesus is the king who ushers in a heavenly kingdom. But it's ironic how he does it. It's sort of paradoxical. It's not in the way that people in Jesus' day thought the kingdom would come, is it? I mean, Rome was in charge when Jesus entered the story in human history in the Incarnation. I think just as this vision predicted. And yet Rome seemed to win. Rome killed Jesus, crucified Jesus. And it looks like at that moment that the kingdoms of this earth, the the superpower of the day, Rome, had won. The kingdoms of the earth had won. But doesn't God love to to sort of turn the tables and to, to use what looks like in our world failure and to turn it into success and victory? That's what God does. Jesus actually defeats Rome. He defeats the earthly kingdom of his day and all subsequent kingdoms. How? By dying and rising from the grave and then ascending to the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus comes in ushering the kingdom. Do you remember how Jesus started his ministry? It's really interesting. He came preaching a sermon. It's like a one-sentence sermon. Way shorter than my sermon. Mark chapter 1, he comes in. What does he do? He says, the time is fulfilled. You might be like, well, the time for what? The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus begins, he he ushers in his earthly ministry, announcing that the kingdom has come because the king is here. And then have you ever noticed how he bookends his ministry, his earthly ministry? The book of Acts? The book of Acts begins... And, uh, you know, the, the disciples are all confused. Jesus says, I'm leaving you. And they say, well, when are you going to usher in 
the kingdom? When are you going to restore the kingdom? They're thinking in merely materialistic terms, political terms. And Jesus goes, oh, you don't get it. Oh, you don't get it. You're thinking in just political terms. I am ushering in and restoring a far greater kingdom. It's a kingdom that is pulling men and women from their allegiances to other kings and kingdoms, kind of ultimately the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, which Colossians 1 talks about. And I am pulling the hearts of men and women from the allegiance to the world to the allegiance of Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom that he is growing and advancing. It's the kingdom that he continues. Remember the, in the... In the vision in Daniel 2, Daniel talks about, or the vision talks about that this stone is going to become a mountain and slowly grow until it just kind of waters and covers the entire world. What does Jesus say at the end of Matthew? You ever notice this? The language is the same. He says, you, and he's talking to the church, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. Same language. You see, Christ is king, and by his death, he has already purchased an eternal kingdom. And there are going to be kings and kingdoms that are going to rise, as they did in Jesus' day, as they did before Jesus' day, and as they have after Jesus' ascension. Kingdoms will rise, kingdoms will fall, and yet, in the same manner, Christ's kingdom will continue to advance. Because Jesus is on his throne right now, ruling and reigning. The kingdom of God is at hand. It has come in Jesus Christ. But, but, but only in part. Right? We still live in a broken world. There are still earthly kingdoms in that sense. And so Jesus inaugurated the kingdom at his first coming. And when he returns again, he will consummate the kingdom and usher in his eternal kingdom. So this stone, this stone cut not by human hands that is of divine origin is Jesus Christ. And he has won. And when did he win? He won decisively when he died on a cross and rose from the grave, ushering in the kingdom, vindicated by God, and sat at the right hand of God, enthroned next to God. Jesus is seated right now at the heavenly realm. He has won. The victory is his. And he has initiated his kingdom. Now, we still live in that in-between. In-between when God, when, when Christ initiated the kingdom of God and yet has not consummated the kingdom of God as he returned. And yet I just would want to remind us that as we live in between the advent of those two realities, all of us should not be seduced by comfort. You see, this vision, it's really helpful for us because it reminds us that every kingdom that comes and as time ushers on until Christ's second coming, it's going to get worse. I mean, Daniel's really helpful because it reminds us that it is always and will forever be a liability to be the people of God. It just is. It's a sobering reality, but it has always been the reality of God's people. 
And yet at the same time, it's not all of discouragement because this is a reminder that there is a conflict between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And the kingdoms of this world have no chance at success. God's kingdom will win, has won in and through Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, don't be dismayed. The kingdom of God might not look like it's winning. It might look like the church is retreating. But Daniel 2 is a, just a prophetic reminder to us all that though it might seem or it might truly be harder for God's people in this season, nevertheless, God's kingdom will come. God's people, God's kingdom has come. And though the conflict rages on, Jesus wins because Jesus has won. Now, and this is really briefly, there's one more movement, and that is this promotion that happens. It's just the re- sort of the resolution to the story, but it's a really good resolution, and there's really good application for us. So look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and made great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief uh, perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a subsequent request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is amazing. Do you see see the king's response? He's thrilled. Thrilled. He, He praises Daniel, and even more than that, he praises Daniel's God. And then he promotes God's people and puts them in positions of privilege and power. Now, I think we just need to step back for a moment and ask, why is Nebuchadnezzar so happy? You ever thought about this? Like, why is he happy? I mean, the vision is saying, hey, there's a kingdom and your kingdom will not last forever. It's going to fall apart. There's going to be a kingdom and it's going to overtake you. And this God's kingdom is going to win. Like, why is he so happy and thrilled? Well, I think it's, he has this terrifying dream and I, I think it's really clear that he interprets this thinking that he is the entire statue. And I think he is interpreting his dream, his sort of gut reaction or his greatest fear is that the kingdom is about, his kingdom, Babylon, is about to get ripped from his hands. That there's some, the stone represents some lurking kingdom that's hiding and awaiting in his lifetime that's just going to conquer Babylon. That's his greatest fear. And this vision is a reminder that That will happen, but not in Nebuchadnezzar's day. He can sleep and rest knowing that for now, the kingdom of Babylon is safe. There will be lurking kingdoms that will devour Babylon, but not in his lifetime. And so he breathes a sigh of relief. He and his kingdom are safe for the time being. And it's interesting that he interprets this as good news. I think so often we look 
at this and we look at the, the coming of God's kingdom in Daniel 2 and we just assume that it's all about judgment. That the message that Daniel has to the king and the kingdoms of this world is burn, baby, burn. That's not the message. The message is actually really good news. The message that Christ is king, ushering in the kingdom, is good news. And not only that, but it's a message in Daniel 2 that says, um, there's going to be delay. Nebuchadnezzar, you've got time. And if you know anything about the story, and we're going to get there in the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, King Nebuchadnezzar, he seems to respond in some way in faith in chapter 2, and then you open up chapter 3, and you're like, nope. And then you get to the end of chapter 3, and you're like, maybe. And then you get to the end of chapter 4, and you're like, nope. And then you get to the end of chapter 4, and you're like, wait a minute. Now, I can't prove this or whatever, but it seems like at the end of chapter 4, what Nebuchadnezzar says, if anyone else said that, you'd go, that's a Christian. God is wooing and working even on the king. Guys, Daniel 2, it is a message for us as the people of God, but even more than that, it's a reminder to us as the people of God that we have a message for the world. That if you were to sit with a a president or a king or a queen, or if you were to sit with your neighbors and your coworkers, you have a message that far more important than trying to change the culture or run from the culture or judge the culture. It's to be a herald to the culture because we are an embassy as this church of heaven itself. An embassy of the kingdom of God. And we really are a broken record. We have one message. It's a declarative message that there is a king and his name is Jesus and that there is a kingdom and that there is a way in through faith and repentance. So, if you were sitting down with someone of power and privilege, would you have a message for them? If you, like Daniel, had an opportunity to sit with the king, what would your message be? I think Daniel gives us the message. And it's simply this. All earthly kingdoms, all earthly kingdoms, are being replaced by Christ's kingdom that has come and that will come. Let's pray. God, we we thank you that, that in the midst of anything that's going on in our lives, that you can root us in the reality of the promise that you're gonna come back that you're going to wipe away every tear, that you will usher in a kingdom that we can't even imagine. It's that good. But until that day, Lord, we are reminded and thankful that the church cannot, must not, and will not retreat because you are building your church and the gates of hell cannot overtake her. So thank you for that reality. And thank you, for the story of Daniel, for his faithfulness. And Lord, we pray this morning that we would be more faithful to to point people to the king and his kingdom and to offer hope to this world that there is a kingdom that is more glorious
than any of us could imagine because it is ruled and reigned by a king more beautiful than we can ever imagine. So we pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.